if you'd remain standing for the reading of the Word of God. This reading comes from the first chapter of the book of Acts. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. This is the word of the Lord. And you can be seated. Um, a little, I want to give you a little snapshot into my brain. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, beware. Um, whenever I do any, anything like this or um, when, I, when I teach, imagine like a, your favorite detective show and there's always this uh, cork board in the detective's office that has random pictures strewn about and sometimes there's yarn connecting different pictures and stuff. That's my brain when, uh, when I teach or when I read the scriptures. Um, and so today, talking about the ascension, um, this is something that definitely, uh, if you had like one piece of paper on the detective board that just said the ascension on it, there would be all these other lines coming off of it. Because um, it's very much connected to everything else we've been uh, talking about in the creed so far. Uh, but I want, I want you to uh, use your imagination for a second um, maybe imagine your, uh, your favorite late-night talk show host coming in and, and doing what, what I think Jay Leno popularized in his bit, Jaywalking, where he'd go around to the streets of L.A. and ask people random questions, and we would all be very entertained by their uh, ignorance sometimes, <laughs> or realize our own ignorance because we don't know the answers to the questions either. But imagine this person came into your average American church and asked this question. What is the gospel? It's a seemingly simple question. And I want you to imagine what kinds of responses you think you might hear. What kinds of things people might say. Or things that they might not say. What would they include? What would they exclude from their answers? And today we live in an age of simplification. We like things to be in sound bites in 140 characters, or however many characters you get on Twitter now. We want to find that way to communicate things quickly and concisely. And when we take this value and apply it to our evangelism, when we talk about the gospel, 
we end up with simple back pocket summaries of the gospel that are basically something like, it's the good news about Jesus, which as true as that is, isn't terribly descriptive. And so we have to ask, what is the news and why is it good? And so far in the creed, this series, we've, we've summarized or talked about a lot of the things that you most, mostly hear when people summarize the gospel. You hear things like Jesus was uh, the Son of God incarnate. He, God became a man, incarnation. You hear about his death for sin, the crucifixion. You hear about his resurrection. But sometimes that's where it ends. And these elements of the gospel and these aspects of the creed are all focused on the finished work of Christ, what Christ has done, past tense, right? He became incarnate. He suffered, he died, he rose. These are all past tense verbs. But sometimes you have people who would include a future element to the gospel. Not only has Jesus done all these things, but there's something he's going to do, which is to return and fully establish his reign. Or as the creed says, he will come to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And so next time, Josh is going to take us through this future component But if these summaries of the gospel concern either just what Jesus did or also what he's going to do in the future, then we have to ask ourselves, what relevance does the gospel have for us in the present? What is Jesus doing now? Is he doing anything now? It's an important question, and it's one that the uh, idea of the ascension is entirely wrapped up with. This gap in our modern evangelism having to do with the present aspects of the gospel is is filled in with this line from the creed that says that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, the first part of that creed statement says he ascended. This is the event that I just read from Acts chapter 1. Jesus, after 40 days after he was resurrected, he is lifted up into heaven on a cloud. And so this is referred to as the ascension, but the second component of that part of the creed that says he is seated at the right hand of God, this is typically referred to as Jesus's session. Now, I'm not going to really distinguish between those two like some people do. I'm just going to refer to it all as Jesus's ascension. And the Ascension is yet another one of those topics in the Creed that we just don't have enough time to cover in its entirety. So I'm putting that out there now. There's going to be things that I wish I could say, but I just can't, time permitting. We'd be here until 5 o'clock tomorrow. Um, So um, the passage that I read is one of the very few passages in the Bible that actually explicitly details this event. You have a little mention of it in the end of Luke's Gospel. You have... Uh, the uh, book of Acts right here. And so that might be to blame for how the ascension gets forgotten. It doesn't really talk about it a lot explicitly in the scriptures, and so we don't really talk about it a lot in our evangelism. And it also might be the case that the ascension is just kind of bizarre, especially in an evangelism context. You've already had to work at convincing someone that a guy rose from the dead, and then now you have to convince them that he was lifted up into heaven like David Blaine or Chris Angel doing some stunt. 
So there's a whole lot of reasons where, that we could say that's why we don't talk about it. But um, one person that I've found who has really wonderfully and simply uh, explained the significance of the ascension is an Australian scholar named Peter Orr. And in his book on the ascension, he says this simple statement about the ascension, and I, I want to come back to it continually in this sermon. He actually opens his book, the very first sentence, with this idea. He says that the ascension is about Jesus as he is now. Jesus as he is now. And I want that to sink in because I don't know if a lot of the time when I think about Jesus or I teach about Jesus that I'm, that I'm doing so considering the fact that Jesus is somewhere. That when I talk about Jesus, I'm not just talking about someone like I would a, a loved one who's passed away, who's no longer with us. No, when we talk about Jesus, we are talking about someone who continually lives. And so that, that's an important aspect to recognize. This is one of the things that the ascension forces us to reckon with, is the present reality of Jesus. And so if the future aspect of the gospel involves Jesus' return, then the ascension tells us where he went, and it tells us what he's been doing in the meantime. So in other words, the ascension is not only about the location of our risen Lord, but about his continuing vocation. So Peter Orr continues, and he highlights what I've been pointing out here. Christians have tended to focus their attention on what Jesus has done and what he will do. However, the Christ that Christians trust in, relate to, and love is the Christ who not only lived, died, rose, and will come again, but also is presently at God's right hand. Now, the emphasis on the ascension that I'm making is, is not to downplay everything else. I don't want to put the ascension above any of the other elements of, of the gospel. There certainly would be no ascension if it weren't for all the other stuff. But the ascension is more than just an optional appendix tacked on to the end of our gospel book that you can read if you want to. If you're a nerd like me, I like to read the appendix in, in books that I have. But another New Testament scholar says that without the ascension, Jesus is not crowned the king of the universe. The ascension is the confirmation and the coronation of the king. And the story is not complete until he ascends to the right hand of the father. And another scholar says the ascension is a major component of what Jesus Christ accomplished, without which the atonement would be incomplete. The ascension is of paramount importance in our theological understanding of what Christ has achieved. So rather than bringing all the other parts of the gospel down, the ascension lifts them up, pun intended. It fulfills them, brings them to their climactic point. Okay. So again, the ascension is about Jesus as he is now. So for the rest of my time, I want to point out three things that are true about Jesus as he is now. And these three things sort of overlap with some of the other elements of the creed that we've already talked about. So the first thing is that he's human. Jesus as he is now is human, which overlaps with the incarnation. Second, Jesus is exalted. He is exalted, which overlaps with the crucifixion, believe it or not. 
And lastly, Jesus, as he is now, is living to intercede, which overlaps with his resurrection. So first, Jesus is human. When we say that Jesus ascended and is seated at God's right hand, we're not just talking spiritually. The Son of God, as in the second person of the Trinity, did not take on his human nature during his time on earth to leave it behind at at the ascension. He didn't hang up his human nature like a uniform after he ascended. Rather, the incarnation is the formal union between God and man, between heaven and earth. Uh, Swiss theologian Karl Barth said that this is like saying that Jesus was a, a king who decided to put on some beggar's clothes for a little while just to see what it was like. And you could sort of make that more contemporary by um, an illustration that I like to use in my classroom talking about Jesus being the ultimate episode of The Undercover Boss, if you've ever seen that show. All right? He disguises himself in blue-collar clothing. He gets his hands dirty. And then when the show is all over, he ditches the costume and goes back to his white-collar existence. That's what sometimes the assumption is about the ascension. But no, the incarnate son belonged to humanity in every way. He was human in every way. And even as a human, God received him into his presence once and for all. And if God would receive his incarnate son, will he not also graciously receive you and I, who are, according to Romans 8, being conformed to the image of this very son? And according to Colossians 3, are being renewed day by day after his image. The ascension of our human Savior gives us greater assurance of our acceptance before our Heavenly Father. Now, Paul said in Ephesians 4 that he who descended is the very one who ascended. He who came down is the one who went up. And he who descended became human before he ascended. And he was human enough according to the book of Hebrews, to be tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he is therefore able to sympathize with our weaknesses. His sinlessness didn't make him less human, but more. From the beginning of creation, God desired his human creatures to be obedient children. Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, showed himself to be the obedient child to his Father even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. And he follows this by saying, therefore, or because of this, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that is the reason why God has highly exalted him. Because Jesus humbled himself, he is highly exalted. This is really just Jesus practicing what he's preached. In the Gospel of Matthew 23, he says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And this leads to the second thing that I said about Jesus as he is now, that he is exalted. Everything about Jesus' life and death seems to actually go against this very point. But it's not because Jesus was a dishonorable man. We don't think that He's unworthy of exaltation because he was bad. No, in fact, dishonorable people get exalted all the time. Just look at our culture. 
Who are the celebrities? Who are the leaders? I mean, nobody's perfect, but a fair amount of them are not necessarily the cream of the crop. And so, in, our, in this world, conducting your business in a dishonorable or unjust way might actually be the way to get to the top, the only way to get to the top. And so Jesus wasn't an unlikely candidate for exaltation because he was bad. It's because he was ordinary. He was a normal Joe Schmo, okay? Car company CEOs get exalted. Elon Musk gets exalted, not carpenters. These people are, on, are not on anybody's radar. And once Jesus started his ministry, he offended people with his ordinariness. How could someone so normal do and say such abnormal yet powerful things? And they question his identity. We saw this uh, in the Gospel of Mark right before we started the Creed series. The people ask, who is this? Is this not the carpenter? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And with regard to the crucifixion, we might ask the same thing. How is such a mighty work of salvation done by his pierced hands? And even the practice of crucifixion was ordinary in the Roman Empire. It happened all the time, sometimes in mass quantities. But despite how common it was, it was still a horrible, awful way to die. And so how could a nobody, an ordinary, doesn't stand out from the crowd kind of a person, undergo a death like that and as a result, be brought to such heights, above the heavens. John the Apostle is helpful here for understanding what's going on. Three times in John's Gospel, Jesus predicts his upcoming death. And each time, Jesus says that he will be, quote, lifted up. That's the phrase that, uh, that Jesus says in John's Gospel. In John 12, he states that he will be lifted up in order to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So there's sort of like this literal element to what he means. I will literally be lifted up from the earth on a cross. But John 8 says, uh, Jesus says something more profound. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Meaning, I am Yahweh, the Lord. In other words, at the very moment that Jesus is lifted up on a cross to die, his identity as God is most clearly perceived. If you don't see it there, you're not going to see it. The death of Christ is a defining moment in his ministry because it is this moment that defines who God is. God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of many, but keeping steadfast love for many more. Exodus 34. By his humble, others-focused death on the cross, Jesus showed that he is God, but also he showed the kind of God that he is, and therefore he is considered worthy of being highly exalted or lifted up. Now this language of being lifted up actually has Old Testament roots. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 52 is where uh, the prophet speaks about this servant who will, as he says in chapter 52, verse 13, be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
And immediately after Isaiah says that about the servant, we have the very next chapter, Isaiah 53, which many of us know is a typical passage read around the season of the church calendar we just went through, uh, Lent and Easter. And so he launches into this description of the suffering servant, and he begins by saying that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, the servant was pretty ordinary-looking guy. Yet, he was despised, rejected, sorrowful, grief-stricken, carrying our sorrows, afflicted, down, 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 he goes to his death. But I want to highlight something about this particular chapter in Isaiah that doesn't get a lot of attention. Toward the end of the suffering servant section in Isaiah 53, there's an unusual emphasis on the servant's silence. He's quiet. It says that he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. Now, most people are quick, quick to point out the Passover or sacrificial imagery here, a lamb being led to the slaughter. But what Isaiah actually emphasizes is his silence his speechlessness. Sacrificial lambs weren't chosen for their silence. They were chosen for their spotlessness. So why talk so much about his silence? Well, it's because the very last verse of the chapter is the moment when the servant finally does open his mouth. And we are focusing on what, what does he do, what does he say when he finally speaks. And so the final verse of Isaiah 53 says, he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressor, transgressors. When the suffering servant finally opens his mouth, he does so to make intercession for others. And so that leads to my last point about Jesus as he is now. He is living to intercede, to make intercession for us. Jesus' ascension was not his retirement from ministry, he maintains the vocation that he began on earth, albeit from a different location, namely heaven. Um, I think last year when everything started to shut down because of the pandemic, the, I saw a joke going around on uh, Ascension Day, which was saying that at the Ascension, Jesus went to go work from home. It's kind of a funny way of thinking about it. <laughs> Some of us are still working from home. Um, he certainly is. But what, what is he doing what is he, how is he occupying himself, okay? After all, Jesus' dying words, according to the Gospel of John, were, it is finished. So, what is finished? And in what sense is it finished? The way I see it, the work of redemption is finished in the same way that being a parent is finished when your baby is born, Right? You don't have to do any more work to create the child. All the long-suffering labor of, of labor and delivery is now finished. But the long-suffering labor of raising the child, caring for the child, nurturing, guiding, disciplining, encouraging, loving the child has just begun. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus mark the new birth of the believer. But, as Jesus gets ready to announce his departure from his disciples, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. 
but I will come to you by sending the Holy Spirit. In fact, he actually said it was better that he ascend to the Father and send the Spirit. And it's better that he does this in the same way that it's better for me to teach my children to do things rather than doing for them, doing them for them for the rest of their life. Through the Spirit, we learn to live like Jesus. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to grow up in every way into Christ. The disciples would learn to do the same things that Jesus did, healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom. And his Spirit would empower them to do these things. Furthermore, Jesus said that they would do greater works than these because he's going to the Father. In other words, it was better for Jesus to ascend to the Father so that he could send the Spirit to empower his followers to continue to advance the kingdom on earth. And the Spirit that Jesus sends is referred to early in Romans 8 as the Spirit of Christ. He is said to intercede for us and to help us in our weakness according to the will of God. Like a parent who encourages and helps their child when they're struggling with something, God intercedes for and helps us through the Spirit when we are weak. And not only that, it's his will to do so. It's his desire to do so. Or as any good Chick-fil-A employee might say, it's his pleasure to do so. He loves to help you. Sometimes I don't enjoy helping my children, just to be honest. They need a lot of help. <laughs> and I don't have a lot of time, right? Or at least I don't think I have a lot of time. But God has this way about him where he loves to help. So how does Jesus give us this intercessory help from his heavenly throne? Well, the word intercession is used in a few places in the Bible. First, uh, the book of 1 Timothy is the most helpful for understanding what it means. It's, it's a, a general word for prayer, and then a little bit more specifically, it's used to talk about intercessory prayer. That might be a phrase that you're familiar with here at Redeemer. Every Sunday, we have a time of intercessory prayer where we pray for the needs and well-being of the world around us. And so this is what Jesus is doing on our behalf right now. It's what he's doing on your behalf right now. He's praying for you. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead to live eternally, Hebrews 7 says that he always lives to make intercession. All right? I don't always live to help my kids. I got to go to bed at some point. But Jesus always lives. And he always lives to help. He will never stop interceding for you because he lives forever and he loves forever. And Jesus' intercession is not his continual petitioning of the Father to be kind to us. This is often how Jesus' intercession is caricatured. Jesus doesn't have to continually go to the Father and show him his nail-marked hands or his spear-pierced side so that he can get the Father to like us. No, this, the moment when Jesus entered into the heavenly place, according to the book of Hebrews, and presented his broken body on behalf of sinners, that was it. That was where forgiveness was purchased. There's no more haggling to be done 
Jesus doesn't have to keep convincing the Father to forgive us, but what Jesus does do is he prays for us like he did for his disciples when he brought them with him to pray in the garden. He said, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. He even throws that prayer into the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 or Matthew 5. I don't remember. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. But inevitably, we will sin. Sadly, we will fall into temptation. But when we do, 1 John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is both the payment, sacrificial offering for our sins, as well as the priest who lives forever to intercede on our behalf. Now, there's a number of other things that I wish I could say about the ascension, but I want to I leave on that note about Jesus interceding. He's on the throne, he's reigning, but what he's doing in the meantime is being intensely concerned with the affairs of your world and my world and being grieved when people suffer, rejoicing when people rejoice. The same thing he's called us to do is stuff that he's already doing in heaven. Praying for people is a powerful thing. Some of you guys are really good at praying for people. I am not one of those people. I'm, I'll be the first to admit that I don't do it as often as I would like. And during Lent this year, I was both encouraged and convicted by my wife's own dedication to pray for people. Some of you guys in here probably know my wife prayed for you at some point. And you know that not just because she prayed for you, but because she told you that she prayed for you. I don't think she missed a day. And she told me when she was praying for me, and just the knowledge that someone was bringing my own cares and concerns, and the fact that someone looked at another person and said, I have plenty of things that I could pray about for myself, but I'm going to lift someone else up to the Father and pray for their needs. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. For some people, the saying, I'm praying for you, is a cop-out. And that's probably because of people like me who are fickle in their prayer, prayer life. But people like my wife over Lent who are disciplined in their prayer to lift others up, to look out for their needs, they're doing a beautiful thing. They have the mind of Christ and they're doing the work of Christ. So this is what our ascended Lord is doing at this very moment. This is Jesus as he is now. He's human. He's exalted. And he is a praying Lord. And this is why we pray in Jesus' name. He's our advocate. He's our high priest. He's our point of contact with the Father. And because of Jesus, according to Hebrews 4, we can approach God's throne, his throne of grace, with confidence and boldness in order to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. So let's go to the Father and do just that. Would you pray with me? Lord, you became one of us. You became like us. You came to where we are and you brought our likeness with you 
into the heavenly place. You are like us, and you make us like yourself. There are many ways in which we don't reflect your image. There are many ways in which we fall short. But we know that you advocate for us. You love us. You cheer us on. You admonish us. You speak to us a tender word when we need one, and you speak to us a harsh word when we need one. And you use your people, your body, to do this. And so I pray that we would go from here with a greater acknowledgement that you continually live praying for us. You are, at this very moment, doing what we are doing. So help us to gain confidence from that, to go throughout our day fearlessly, courageously, obediently following you. In your name we pray. Amen.